This evening's scripture reading is two passages of scripture. We begin not with the text, but with the prophecy of Isaiah. In chapter 44, we have one of the two clearest exposés, we may call it, of an idol. And then our text, Psalm 115, is what many call the classic text of all of the Scripture to show the folly, the complete folly of worshiping idols. But I want to begin with Isaiah chapter 44, beginning at verse 9. And we'll read through uh, verse 20. They that make a graven image are all of them vanity, and their delectable or desirable things shall not profit, and they are their own witnesses. They see not nor know that they may be ashamed. Who hath formed a god or molten a graven image that is profitable for nothing? Behold, all his fellows shall be ashamed, and the workmen, they are of men. Let them all be gathered together. Let them stand up. Yet they shall fear, and they shall be ashamed together. And now, the section is divided into those who mold an image out of metal, and those who grave an image, that is, carve one out of wood. First is the metal smith. Verse 12, The smith with his tongs both work it, fit in the coals, and fashioneth it with hammers, and worketh it with the strength of his arms. Yea, he is hungry, and his strength faileth. He drinketh no water, and is faint. The carpenter stretcheth out his rule. He marketh it out with a line, he fitteth it with planes, and he marketh it out with the compass, and maketh it after the figure of a man, according to the beauty of a man, that it may remain in the house." He heweth him down cedars, and taketh the cypress and the oak, which he strengtheneth for himself among the trees of the forest. He planteth an ash, and the rain doth nourish it. Then shall it be for a man to burn, for he will take thereof and warm himself. Yea, he kindleth it, and baketh bread. Yea, he maketh a god, and worshipeth it. He maketh it a graven image, and falleth down thereto. He burneth part thereof in the fire. With part thereof he eateth flesh. He roasteth roast, and is satisfied. Yea, he warmeth himself, and saith, Aha, I am warm, I have seen the fire. And the residue, the rest thereof, he maketh a god. Even his graven image, he falleth down unto it, and worshipeth it. And prayeth unto it, and saith, Deliver me, for thou art my God. They have not known, nor understood, for he hath shut their eyes that they cannot see, and their hearts that they cannot understand. And none considereth in his heart, neither is there any knowledge nor understanding to say, I've burned part of it in the fire. Yea, also I have baked bread upon the coals thereof, I've roasted flesh and eaten it. And shall I make the residue thereof an abomination? Shall I fall down to the stock of a tree? He feedeth on ashes, 
A deceived heart hath turned him aside, that he cannot deliver his soul, nor say, Is there not a lie in my right hand? That's the prophet's exposure of the folly of an idol. Now we turn to the text in Psalm 115. I'm really going to preach on the whole of the psalm, but the text specifically is verses 3 through 8. Psalm 115. Not unto us, O Lord, not unto us, but unto Thy name give glory for Thy mercy and Thy truth's sake. Wherefore should the heathen say, Where is now their God? But our God is in the heavens. He hath done whatsoever He hath pleased. Their idols are silver and gold, the work of men's hands. They have mouths, but they speak not. Eyes have they, but they see not. They have ears, but they hear not. Noses have they, but they smell not. They have hands, but they handle not. Feet have they, but they walk not. Neither speak they through their throat. They that make them are like unto them. So is everyone that trusteth in them. O Israel, trust thou in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. O house of Aaron, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. He that fear the Lord, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. The Lord hath been mindful of us. He will bless us. He will bless the house of Israel. He will bless the house of Aaron. He will bless them that fear the Lord, both small and great. The Lord shall increase you more and more, you and your children. You are blessed of the Lord, which made heaven and earth. The heaven, even the heavens are the Lord's, but the earth hath He given to the children of men. The dead praise not the Lord, neither any that go down into silence. But we will bless the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. Praise the Lord. Now please keep your Bible open, at least for the re-reading of the text. And I would suggest that it's going to be much easier for you to listen to the sermon if you have your Bible open on your lap too, because I'm going to be referring often to the language of the passage. But let me reread the text. Verse 3. But our God is in the heavens. He hath done whatsoever He hath pleased. Their idols are silver and gold, the work of men's hands. They have mouths, but they speak not. Eyes have they, but they see not. They have ears, but they hear not. Noses have they, but they smell not. They have hands, but they handle not. Feet have they, but they walk not. And then he returns to the mouth again, starts with speaking, ends with speaking. Neither, the end of verse 7 says, speak they through their throat. And then verse 8, they that make them are like unto them. So is everyone that trusteth in them. Psalm 115 is striking. It's a loud, public declaration of the absolute folly of idolatry. A loud, a public declaration. Idols are vain. Why would you worship them? 
and a loud public declaration of the sovereignty and the potence, not the impotence, but the power and the strength of our God who's in the heavens. A loud and public declaration of the folly of idolatry and the absolute sovereignty and power and goodness of our God. At the very same time, it's a loud and public call to you and to me, put away your idols, break them down, clean your homes of them and your hearts, and trust God. Oh, Israel, trust Jehovah. He's your help and your shield. Oh, house of Aaron, that is, office bearers, trust the Lord. He's your help and your shield. All ye, trust in the Lord, because an idol can't help you, and trusting in them is foolish. That's Psalm 115, very simple. A public declaration of the vanity of idols and the goodness of God and a call to put away your idols and to trust God. Interestingly, the context of Psalm 115, at least that's what it appears to be, is great trouble and distress for the psalmist. He was in distress. He was in trouble. The heathen were oppressing him. And he cries for deliverance. Implicitly cries for deliverance. But explicitly, what he does in his trouble is to mock the heathen gods. The heathen who are oppressing him are pointing their finger at him and saying, we hurt you. Now where's your God? Where is he in the miracles you say he's able to perform? Where is he in his ability to help you and deliver you from our oppression? Where is he? And so the psalmist then says, why should the heathen now say, where is their God? That's wrong. And then the Spirit inspires him to say, Our God is in the heavens. He's done whatsoever He hath pleased. And their gods are nothing. They're absolutely, utterly vain, empty, impotent, and worthless. And so we have good instruction here in Psalm 115. I've not found any Protestant Reformed preacher, at least publicly, that I could find preaching on Psalm 115. It ought to be known among us as the, as they say, locus classicus. That is the classic text in all of the Bible on the absolute folly of worshiping idols. Let's be taught tonight about idolatry's follies, both because they don't give you what they promise to give you, and in fact... When you worship them, they're going to take revenge upon you and make you just like them. That's the, the first and the second point of the sermon. And then the third point of the sermon is the implied call in this text. First, idolatry's failure or folly. Second, idolatry's revenge. And then in the third place, idolatry's call. That is, the call that we have from the text with regard to the idols. An idol is anything in which men place their trust other than the true and living God. Children, what was the most important word I used there? 
An idol is anything in which men place their trust instead of trusting the true God. It's surprising to me that Lord's Day 34 of the Heidelberg Catechism does not have in the margin this passage to help define an idol. You have in Lord's Day 34, question 95, a question, what is idolatry? And then a definition. Idolatry is instead of or besides that one true God who has manifested Himself in His Word to contrive or have any other object in which men place their trust. Trust. And that comes out in the text because after the description of the idol is the call, O Israel, verse 9, trust thou in Jehovah. And verse 10, house of Aaron, trust in Jehovah. And verse 11, ye that fear the Lord, trust in the Lord. And that helps us define what an idol is. It's anything, instead of the one true living God, that we put our trust in. Our trust to help us. An idol says, look at me. I'm able to help you. Trust me. And then if you go through the psalm with me for a moment, you'll see what a God is supposed to do that an idol purports to be able to do. Verses 9 through 11, to help and to shield. An idol says, trust me to help you. Trust me to protect you. Trust me to provide your needs. And when you're in danger, I'll shield you. An idol says, trust me to bless you. Trust me to speak well of you. Trust my voice to lift your spirits when you are in distress. That's verses 12 and 13. Verse 14, an idol promises to prosper you, to increase you. That is to make you fruitful. So that you multiply either financially so that you prosper. In the Old Testament, the sign of prosperity was material things. A sign of prosperity was there. Make you prosper either in your possessions or in your posterity. You'll have many children. You'll be fruitful and multiply. You'll see your children and your children's children. Trust me, the idol says, to increase you. Verse 14. Trust me to remember you. When everyone forgets you, no one thinks about you. Trust me to be mindful of you. That's verse 12. That's what a God does. That's what an idol promises to do. I'll never forget you. Go back to verse 1. A God pities in time of distress and sorrow. A God has compassion upon the followers of that God. He's faithful. That's what truth in verse 1 refers to. When all other gods renege on their promises, says the idol, trust me. I will not renege on my promises. I will do what I promised to do. And then outside of our text, if you think of all the other places in the Bible that speak of gods or idols, an idol or a god tells the future so that you know what's coming and are not afraid of those days ahead. Those were the necromancers and the soothsayers. And an idol will keep you company because that's what a God is supposed to do. Have fellowship with you. 
Be your friend and companion and take pleasure in your company. All of that is what an idol says, trust me for. Now, an idol is described in the text with all the attributes and functions of a man, and that's helpful because that's what we understand. Eyes, ears, nose, mouth, hands, and feet. An idol says, I'm like you. And now in the back of your mind, don't forget that the true God manifests himself in what we call anthropomorphisms and says, I have eyes, I have a mouth, I have a nose, I have ears, I have hands, and I have feet. And the idol says, trust me, I do too. And so those who make the idols form them in the shape of a man with all of those features of a man because that's what you need in a God to help you. You need in a God a mouth to speak to you, to make promises to you, to console you when you're discouraged or hurt, to explain the past, why, and to predict the future, what. That's what an idol does. Or just talk to me, you say to the idol. And the idol says, trust me, I have a mouth, I can. An idol has eyes, and the eyes are the means by which an idol is mindful of you. Remember? Mindful. The text doesn't speak of a brain. The text speaks of eyes because it's by the eyes that someone sees and knows. We would talk about the brain, but we understand that language. Sometimes we say, oh, I see, which means, oh, I understand. I perceive your needs. I see. And the idol says, I see. I have eyes. And an idol has ears. He can listen to your pleas. He can hear your cries. And then not just listen and say, that'll be $120 for the hour. But he hearkens. He's able to help you, having heard you. And he has a nose. And that's curious. Because we don't often think of the function of a nose. Let me pause a little bit longer with regard to the nose, because that's very important. It's probably only those of you who lost your sense of smell in COVID and maybe have not even gotten it back, who have a renewed appreciation for the importance of the power to smell. Something good delights you, and something evil repulses you. That's the function of a nose, to smell and either be delighted or disgusted. Now a god has a nose, and the god with the nose, as a husband says to his wife, I love that smell of you. Remember, Song of Solomon speaks of that. Read it. And when the God smells you, He either is delighted in you, or He's repulsed by you, and He testifies of that delight in your conscience. That's the function of man's conscience. A God speaks to someone, not just in their ears, but within them, deeply within them. So even you children, remember that in the Old Testament, the people of God were called to burn incense. And that didn't stink, it smelled good. And that was a symbol of the prayers that went up to heaven. 
And then they thought in their mind's eye of God in heaven saying, I love that smell. I delight in you. And there were other times when God smelled their offerings and was disgusted by them because they were offerings that were not made from a true heart. Men live with a conscience, either good or bad, and need that conscience either confirmed and relieved or convicted. A nose enables the God to do that. Trust me, says the God. I have an ability to see you, hear you, and smell you, and then tell you that I delight in you and you are pleasing to me. And I have hands to move on in the text now. Hands represent the ability to do, to help, to care for, to protect, to shield, to grant the needs. And feet represent the ability to come to you when you need someone to come to you. And then the text comes back to the throat as if to emphasize the crucial importance of a God who with his throat and all the vocal cords and the parts of the mouth formulate words so that you can hear them. Now, here's the text. What folly to trust in an idol who says, look at me. It's foolish in the first place because they're man-made. They're the works of men's hands. That's why we read in Isaiah chapter 44 where the, the prophet was exposing them, laughing at them. Do you realize what these men are doing? They're taking a beautiful tree, cutting it in half, using one half of it to burn, to heat their home, and to cook their meals, and the other half they're making a god out of it and saying, I'm going to trust you. They're trusting in ashes. That's all they're making. It's foolish. It's man-made. You mustn't trust in something that you make, and yet you do, and we'll come to that in a little while. There are other words that the Bible uses to describe idols, vanity, abomination, but this word is very important, man-made. The folly in the second place is that they're expensive. You have to pay a lot, silver and gold. Those are the currencies of the old times and the present by which you buy your food, obtain shelter, get medicine, hire armies to protect you, and you put that money instead into a useless, foolish idol. And then comes the central aspect of their folly. They have no ability to help at all. Not at all. They purport to be able to help, but they can't. Just think, children, of the time when Elijah went to the top of Mount Carmel. There were all the Baal prophets dancing around their altars, and there was little Elijah by his altar. And they spoke, and they cried, and they danced, and they did everything but kill themselves. And the gods said nothing, because Baal's gods had no voice to speak to them in their troubles. He was silent. Looked like he could speak, but he couldn't. He didn't see them when they prostrated before them as worshipers, even when they cut themselves to get his attention. He didn't see them because he isn't a God. He doesn't really have eyes. 
He didn't smell their incense so strong and sweet as it might have been. He didn't handle with any hands that he would have the gifts that they brought. And therefore, he was not able to take one step toward them to give them what they needed. He's an idol. There was no pity in him. He was not mindful of them. He couldn't tell them the future. He couldn't explain the past. He had as much ability to fellowship with them as you have ability to fellowship with a rock. And where do you think that silver and gold came from? Down in the rocks. That's all they are. Precious rocks. They're idols. And though men knew this, they were still tempted to trust them. How utterly, inconceivably foolish. And you have as many idols as they did. And I do. You do. And I do. Don't imagine that they had this sin. And we don't. The first commandment is still the first commandment and necessary for every one of us. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. And that's why I quoted the Apostle Paul in the prayer. Paul said in Corinthians, Though there be that are called gods, whether in heaven or in earth, as there be gods many and lords many, but to us there is but one God, the Father of whom are all things, and we in Him, and one Lord Jesus Christ, by whom are all things, and we. Gods many and lords many, today in the New Testament. And so the Apostle John ends his epistle, Little children, keep yourselves from idols. Now I want to be very careful I ask you to pay very close attention to some questions for you because I'm going to come in a moment to some examples. But the weakness of examples is that your particular idol isn't in my list of examples. So just listen and think. What is it that you put your trust in to help you when you have needs? To comfort you when you are in distress? To pity you when you're sad and hurt. To speak to you when you're lonely. To approve you when your conscience is troubled. To shield you when you are assaulted. Who do you trust to remember you when everyone else forgets you? To whom do you look? To tell you about the past and explain it. And to predict for you the future so you can prepare for it. We have idols many and gods many. And they're all designed by men to serve one or more of those functions. To speak and hear and approve and help and give pleasure and provide fellowship and comfort and pity. They're all designed for that. Now my list, in which list may not be found your idol, but there's where the Spirit will apply to you. Let me start perhaps with an axe that I have to grind, and perhaps it's my weakness because I don't have Facebook and I despise it. There's a use for it, but think of what social media does for people today will speak to you. 
It will not forget you. It will remind you of important things. I just got a smartphone for the first time. And I'm annoyed by the reminder of what picture I took last year. I don't need that reminder. But that's some of what social media does. It'll remember your birthdays and anniversaries. And then it will like you and approve you. How many likes did you get in that last post? Of course, you say, but that's only one. And there's a use to social media. And I understand that. And you do too. Think of all of the games on the internet that addict many young men and probably older and give you a sense of approval because whereas you lost last time, you won this time, and now you're able to do more and you're able to think highly of yourself because the company of gamers approves you, commends you, thinks highly of you. How many others of us aren't addicted to sports? To watch them, to follow them, to know about them. If you question the technology, just remind yourself what you see when you go to the restaurant. And a family is waiting in the waiting room and they're all sitting on their phone. They're not talking together and then they go to the table. They're all looking at their phone. They're not speaking to each other anymore. They're finding fellowship, companionship, comfort, satisfaction in that. Now remember, your idol and mine might not be in this list, but think of all of the ways in which we find pleasure and satisfaction and companionship. And don't forget the horror of pornography on the internet. And I bring that up now not only because I'm a minister who understands because a flood of people are finding themselves addicted to that today and the church too, but because that was the sin of the Old Testament. And that was the way in which the idols of the Old Testament lured the people to follow them. We're going to give you pleasure. So, so often in the Old Testament, the worshiping of idols was joined with sexual sin homosexual sin sometimes and it's no different today and how many people don't find themselves satisfied finding pleasure and companionship and joy in the strange woman who with her feet comes to you in your home in your device with her hand or other body parts beckons you with her sweet lips speaks to you and says I will satisfy you and give you pleasure and if any is naive about that you need to do some studying about how that's devastating not just society but the church there are gods many and there are idols many and we need to be aware of that then there's money and possessions and we're satisfied when we buy something and find pleasure in taking something home. And then when that, after an hour or two, wears off, we need to go and buy something else. We find comfort. We find satisfaction in that. And when we need to know the future, not just of what the weather is going to be tomorrow, but what the economy may be, we resort to computer forecasts and 
artificial intelligence. And what all of that is, often, is man trying to find a God who is able to help him explain the past and predict the future. And they're all man-made. All made by man and all expensive. And one more time, there are God's many, many more that I've not mentioned tonight. You and I must think of what we have made or find to give us those things that we need from a God to bless and help and have compassion with us and speak to us and shield us and all of the rest. How absolutely, utterly foolish. All they do, and I'll be finished with the first half of the first point, all they do is leave you empty and guilty and miserable and alone. All alone with a conscience that's bad. But our God is in the heavens. Our God has eyes and ears and a nose and a mouth and hands and feet. And He's real. He's not the work of men's hands. He's the one who made the heavens and the earth. He's done whatsoever He pleased. Oh, the great Jehovah God in whom we are to trust. He has a mouth. And now I don't have time to take you through all of the passages of Scripture that describe all of these we would call body parts and attribute them to God. Oh, the voice of God. Trust Him. By the word of the Lord were the heavens made and all the host of them by the breath of His mouth. He made the worlds. When He curses, men are cursed. And when He blesses, we are blessed. By His voice, the cedars of Lebanon break. But by His voice, He raises the dead like Lazarus. Makes the lame to walk and the deaf to hear and the fearful comfort. We live by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. He's not an idol. He's the only one truly who can speak. And He has eyes. And with those eyes, He sees you. He knows you. He'll never forget you. He's mindful of you. He that formed the eye, shall he not see? His eyes behold. His eyelids try the children of men. Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. What no one else knows about you, he knows. When everyone else forgets you, he remembers. He understands you in all of your needs. And with his ears, he hears you. When no one else listens, no one else can understand, no one else is near, He hears you. Bow down thine ear, we say to God, and deliver me. Incline thine ear and save me. And He does. And all of the likes that you'll ever need are in Him. Because He has a nose who smells you and delights in you and testifies in your conscience. You are approved. So we say, send thy approval from on high. 
We're not waiting at the computer to see how many likes we got or how many views on our most recent YouTube post. We're not interested in that. We're interested in this. How fair is thy love, my sister, my spouse. How much better is thy love than wine and the smell of thine ointments than all spices. Think of the nose and the delight of God that He has in you. The smell of your breath, Song of Solomon 7, verse 7, is like apples. With His feet He comes to you. And with His hands He handles you. And blesses you. And shields you. Trust in Him. And in Him alone. And we're not yet finished with the first point because God does all of that in the Lord Jesus Christ. And by His cross, who's also not made nor created, but begotten of the very being of God Himself, who came to be like us, with eyes to see us, and a mouth to speak to us, and ears to hear us, and a nose to smell us, and hands to help us, which nailed to the cross, shed His blood with His feet, so that He could be everything that we need. God is in the heavens, and He came down to earth to be our God in the Lord Jesus Christ. He's the eyes, and the ears, and the nose, and the mouth, and the hands and the feet of God. In Him, God speaks to us, helps us, blesses us, pities us, protects us, approves us, is faithful to us, remembers us, and fellowships us with a fellowship like no one else. Many years ago, when we went to Jamaica, and First Church was at the lead of that, some of you maybe were there to hear the little hymn that I can never get out of my mind when I think of Jamaica. Closer than a brother, my Jesus is to me. He's my dearest friend in everything I need. He's my rock, my shield and hiding place. Closer than a brother, Jesus is to me. He's your God. Trust Him. Not the idols. How foolish. How utterly, inconceivably foolish. But that's not the worst of it. And now my second and third points aren't going to be as long as my first, so don't worry. But that's not the worst of it, the folly of idolatry. The worst of it is idolatry's revenge. If you look at the text again, in verse 8, they that make them, and it's surprising to me that that word are is not in italics, are like unto them. So is everyone that trusteth in them. There's two ways to translate that. The way the King James translates it, and another way. And the way the King James translates it would be like this. You who make an idol and trust it, you're no different than the idol. The idol is foolish, so are you. The idol is weak, so are you. The idol is blind, so are you. The idol is mute, so are you. 
you who make it and you who trust in it are just like it. And that's a very important truth. But there's a more important truth, and that's from a different translation of this, which every other translation of the Bible gives. And that is, they that make them become like them. That is, there's a transformative power in an idol to make you what you weren't before, and it's not to the better. They that make them become like them. The Old Dutch version has that same translation. And if you remember how the Psalter goes, it also does. Because, and this is another little reminder, that when they made the Psalter, they were not looking at the King James Version in the early 1900s, but the new versions that came out in England in 1885, and the counterpart to that in the United States in 1901, the English Revised Version and the American Standard Version, lie behind most of the versifications of the Psalms. So it's not surprising when you get to the Psalter number, you sing, like them shall be all those who hold to gods of silver and of gold. Not are, but shall be. That is, you're going to become something that you weren't when you stand in the presence of an idol. The theological point here is this, that man becomes like the ones in whose presence he stands. You become like those with whom you fellowship. You stand in the presence of folly and you become foolish. It's one thing to say you are what you eat. Probably better you become what you eat. And there's some truth to that, but the world doesn't understand. The far more important principle is that you become just like the ones with whom you fellowship. You stand in the presence of an idol. You trust in an idol. You love an idol. You're going to become just like him. You're going to have a mouth you won't be able to speak, eyes you won't be able to see, and all of the rest. You adore weakness. You become weak. More and more. That's the point. There is a process. Isn't that what the Bible teaches in 2 Kings 17, they followed vanity and became vain. And one of the very important words for idol in the Old Testament is vanity. And so 2 Kings 17.15 establishes that point. They followed vanity, they became vain. Jeremiah has almost the very same truth when he says in chapter 2 verse 5, early in the prophet, they walk after vanity and are become vain. Now the Apostle Paul picks up that same truth in 1 Corinthians 15 when in the middle of that beautiful passage about the resurrection, he inserts some strange, apparently strange on the surface of it, teaching similar, be not deceived, evil communications corrupts good manners. You could translate that, evil fellowship corrupts conduct. When you have fellowship with evil, you are going to live in an evil way. Don't be deceived. Same biblical principle. Now that's the theological point. The theological explanation is that God made us what we may call malleable. He made us children like Play-Doh. You can form Play-Doh into any shape you want. 
You can make an animal out of it. You can make a car out of it. You can make a tree out of it. That's the way God made us. Just like Play-Doh, we're able to be formed and shaped and molded. That's what that word malleable means. God created us so that depending on whose presence we are in, we will be formed. And when we stand in the presence of an idol, we more and more become like an idol. It's the judgment of God upon those who worship idols that they become like an idol. It's like the law of gravity. You can try to deny it. You can try to fight against it. But it's there and it will always be there. The one in whose presence you stand will form you into His image. And that's why parents warn you, children, about friends. And you don't like that warning when they say, be careful, those are not good friends. You're going to become like them. Oh no, dad and mom, I won't become like them. I'll make them like me. And your parents say, be careful, be careful. Those who you friend are going to become, uh, you are going to become like them. There's a little song that children sing when they're little. And it goes, everybody knows it, Oh, be careful little eyes what you see. Oh, be careful little ears what you hear. Oh, be careful little mouth what you speak. And then it gives the reason. I want to give you another reason. The reason the song gives is because your father up above is looking down in love, so be careful little eyes what you see. But if you could versify it, it would be better to say, oh, be careful little eyes what you see, because what you see and delight in, you are going to become like that. Just like that. And so go back to the idols of the first point. Think of them. Each one of them. I won't list them again, but think of them. You delight in violence. You enjoy watching greed on television? Are selfish people your companions and mine and vain and ignorant and blind and weak and foolish and only sexual? Well, be careful. The Word of God to you tonight says what you see, what you hear, and whose presence you come. You need to ask yourself, if I'm weak, what explains that? Maybe because I've been in the presence of weakness. And if I can't see very well spiritually, maybe it's because I've been in the presence of those also who can't see. Because I become like them. And the opposite is true too. The marvelous gospel to us is not only that we have a God in heaven who does have eyes to see us and ears to hear us, but when we stand in His presence, so is the law of God. We become like Him. 
with eyes to see, truly see, and ears to hear what we ought to hear, and mouths to speak what is beautiful to speak, and noses to detect what's repulsive and disgusting, as well as what's pleasing and good, and hands that are strong to help the needy, and feet to go to their rescue, and all of the rest. This is where I get the biblical principle that I stated at the first half of this second point. That you become like the one in whose presence you stand. It would be a stretch to say it comes from a different translation of Psalm 115 verse 8, although it's clear enough there. But it comes especially from the reality that God teaches us from the very beginning of Scripture that when you stand in His presence, you become like Him. When you stand in His light, you become light. And you children only need to think of Moses going up to the top of the mountain who spent 40 days with God and came down from that mountain and glowed with the presence of God so that the people of God said, I can't see you. We can't look at you. We need a veil over your face because you're like God. And that in a very primitive way is the Bible's instruction to teach us that when you stand in the presence of God, you become God-like. That's what Paul teaches in 2 Corinthians 3. We all, with unveiled face, that's what open face means there, beholding the glory of the Lord are changed into the same image from glory to glory. When we behold the glory of the Lord, we become like the Lord. We don't become gods, but we become like Him. That's the image of God. That more and more. Now think of the Play-Doh again, children. When you worship an idol, you become like an idol. And when you worship God, you become like God in this way. That you have a mouth that can speak beautiful things and ears to hear and eyes to see and a heart to sympathize and all of the rest of what God does for us. Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John, they detected that they had been with Jesus. It's another example of this truth. And, and don't you think that this is what the hymn writer was thinking about when he wrote the hymn, Take Time to Be Holy? Speak oft with thy Lord. This is how the second verse goes. Take time to be holy. The world rushes on. Spend much time in secret with Jesus alone. By looking to Jesus, like Him thou shalt be. Thy friends, in thy conduct, His likeness shall see. They understood this principle. The negative application to end this second point is this. There's a reason that some of us are better able to speak and more interested in speaking about the batting average of the best baseball player today than we are about God. More interested in talking about basketball or football or fishing or hunting. Better able to tell the uh, the attributes and the benefits of a particular tool or car after church. And we are about 
God Himself. There's a reason we're able to speak about that because we've been listening to that. And that we recognize with these ears and even like to hear those things that are empty and vain instead of the things of the kingdom because we've been standing in the presence of those things that are empty and vain. And the positive application of this is people of God, the kind of church member you want to be with, but the kind of church member you want to be is the church member that has eyes to understand you and your needs and a mind to think of you when no one else does and hands that are strong to help and bless and feet to come to your rescue and all of the other needs that God-like people have, strengths that they have to be a blessing to the people of God. Christ-like people. So the call that's implied in the text and really is in the context explicitly is put your idols away. Don't trust them. Do whatever it takes to break with them. And if that means you don't have a smartphone or you have someone supervise every single electronically connected device you have and you don't want to do that, well, do that. The Word of God says, break with your idols. Put them away. And so I've chosen just one or two. Let me make the application to myself. Do what it takes to repent of your folly of finding your satisfaction in them. But that's not the first thing the text says. If you're oppressed, now we come back to the context, if you're oppressed by your enemies and mocked by them, where's your God? How can He help you? He promised to help you. He's not. You're in trouble. What must you do? You must make a fool out of the idol. You must first say, My God is in the heavens. He hath done whatsoever He hath pleased. And you, God who purport to be a God, who say you can help me, comfort me, strengthen me, bless me, satisfy me, approve me. You're no God. You're no God at all. Publicly expose the idol. Parents, do that with your children. Ministers need to do that off the pulpit. Even in Singapore and maybe Canada, where there's laws that forbid making fun of the gods of the other religions. It's costly to build idols. It may be costly also for you to expose them in their folly. Your minister is put in jail. You support him. You may go there too. But do that. It's the classic text of all of the Scripture about idols. And this classic text says, make fun of them. Show their folly, their impotence, their ignorance, their inability in any way to help you. The only God that is able to help you is the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ and through him. Number one, put them away. Number two, speak about them. And number three, come into God's workshop again next week, Sunday morning. This is where God goes to work on you 
and me. Where we stand in His presence with His Word before us, and we see Him and understand Him. And the more you sit in His workshop, in church, morning and evening, and in His workshop where you open the Word at home, in your family or in your private devotions, the more you stand in the presence of God, the more you will become like Him with a strength that you never knew you could have, with an ability to see things you'd never seen before and hear what now delights you that used to repulse you. Come into His workshop, as it were, and be changed into the same image from glory to glory. Our God is in the heavens. Trust Him, house of Israel. Trust Him, ye sons of Aaron. All ye that fear the Lord, trust Him and Him alone.